Well, hello and welcome to Finding Our Way, our Southridge Church member podcast designed to give people the inside scoop on life in our church. Here's our host and lead pastor, Jeff Lockyer. Everybody, welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. Uh, we are really excited this month as we track on Sundays with our It Takes a Village series to also be able to check in with some really key outside voices in the life of our church. And uh, for some of you, you may not know Greg Paul, but Greg for over a decade has been a huge influence in our community, especially in our ministry to the homeless uh, in St. Catharines. And so, Greg, welcome to our podcast. And uh, it's great that we can check in with you. Oh, it's great to be back, if only virtually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of us who have never met or heard you in the times that you've been around Southridge, can you just share a little bit of your background and where you come from, where you're at, and, and uh, what you're up to these days? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I mean, it's germane to the rest of the conversation. So I'll mention that I came from a very fundamentalist kind of Christian background uh, long ago. And, um, but then in 1992, I started working in Toronto at Sanctuary. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But Sanctuary is a community that, uh, that holds at its center people who are poor and excluded or marginalized for other reasons. And uh, it exists in the downtown core of, of Toronto. Um, so that's been, you know, my life for uh, 30 years, pretty much now, uh, 29 years or something. Um, and uh, that has really shaped and continues to shape the way I think about life and ministry, being involved with uh, some of the, the neediest and most hurting people in our, uh, in our culture. Yeah, sanctuary is almost essentially a church for the homeless, where we've kind of integrated a shelter into our church. Uh, you've taken it one step further and in that level been kind of fully incarnational among the, the, the poor and the homeless and the excluded. Is that correct? Yeah, so really it was homeless voices that said to us in the early days of our outreach that we needed to become a church. So. Uh, it was two specific men, um, Richard and Dana, who are both gone now, but they were the ones who really said to the rest of us, this thing needs to be a church. We need it or we'll die. And they meant that literally. Um, and and so uh, right from the beginning, it was people who are, I call them a Beatitudes people, you know, people who are the poor in this world, who the kingdom really belongs for, Jesus taught us. And so they've been right at the center of it, uh, rather than people that, kind of we reach out to or do service among and that sort of thing. So that, that continues to this day. And uh, how's it been going at Sanctuary, especially in the last year and a half or so through the pandemic? I know that our shelter ministry has been, you know, faced with all kinds of uh, you know, unexpected challenges. Um, yeah. How's it has been going in Toronto? It's been really, really challenging. Um, one of these sidebars to the pandemic has been a, an immense spike in overdose deaths. Um, doesn't get a lot of press, but that's uh, the numbers have gone through the roof. So yeah. our community in the midst of dealing too. with a, a, a pandemic has been dealing with 
a tremendous amount of loss. Now, we always have dealt with a lot of loss, but it, it just has gotten worse than ever. The other thing that's been really difficult is, is that uh, the pandemic and the necessary protocols to deal with the pandemic at Sanctuary have um, disrupted the community so much that it's hard to say that right now there is a functioning community at Sanctuary. It's become much more service provision oriented. Um, we're very concerned about that and, and the first order of business when we have uh, enough headspace, emotional space and energy will be to, to reboot and try to figure out how we reclaim being a group of people who are just living life, life together. Um, but the pandemic has scattered people. Um, people have died. People uh, have been restricted in numbers. Um, if anybody's been watching the news around the clearing of encampments in Toronto, there's been a huge amount of difficulty in that. Uh, a lot of homeless folks chose to stay in encampments, which have proven actually to be way safer in terms of, well, in terms of everything, uh, but including in terms of COVID infection than the shelters that the city has provided and the, and the city, frankly, has not provided enough. But at the same time, the, the city keeps bulldozing encampments. So. It's been a really, really difficult time, and our, our tired, our staff, frankly, are really tired. Um, I, I think they're probably more exhausted than they know. Hmm. What you're describing would be, I would say, to a T, what we've experienced in St. Catharines. I'm sure, and especially your your comments, the, the the second comment you made, just about the the absence of community life. Yeah, I mean that's that's everything that our shelter is and that's yeah. everything really that our St. Catharines location is and when you reduce it down to just emergency hostel or just the, the you know the basic kind of social supports um, I know that with residents with former residents with our staff and with our congregation at least from our St. Catharines location like the loss of community life has been by far the most significant component to all of this, even though encampments and overdoses and fatigue and exhaustion, I mean, that's all real in our context as well. And so we've been in, it's funny that you're just saying that because we've been in the majority of our conversations around reopening when it comes to the shelter is how can we as fast as possible reclaim as much community life as possible? Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be a challenge because community, of course, isn't uh, isn't constructed. It grows over over a period of time and grows organically. So that's going to be a big challenge for our folks. Yeah, and it's, it's been it's you know very, it's been exhausting it very much for be a restart. Sorry, I was going to say it was it was it was very much like a restart, like you're starting over. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, we fortunately we don't have to build infrastructure as we go. <laughs> this time as we did many years ago but certainly in terms of the relational aspect of it it'll be like starting over in many ways hmm. yeah well greg one one thing that i i, I want to talk about today um that that's also been very similar to our journey has been uh your experience and your journey of inclusion of lgbtq plus people and it's right. interesting because when i try to explain our journey to people. I actually have to start with our move to St. Catharines, with our experience with the shelter, and just with our awakening and, and sensitizing to dynamics of marginalization. And I'm sure in your context, that's that's been similar. 
Um, can you talk about how, you know, your experience at Sanctuary, living in Toronto, working, you know, among and on the streets, how that awakened you to the challenges that LGBTQ plus people face? Sure. Um, well, it, it, it's uh, all really interconnected. Uh, and I'm sure this is the case for you guys too. But uh, in 1992, when I started at Sanctuary, the AIDS crisis was in full swing, of course. And um, and Sanctuary is located in the corner of what at the time was one of the largest queer communities in the world. So I think they figured that San Francisco and Amsterdam were larger. Now, I don't know what the case is now, but that was the case at the time. But despite the fact that it was large, it was a ghettoized community. In fact, they used to call it the gay ghetto. Nobody does anymore. They call the church street, they call that uh, main street of the village, the, the gay village. But And now, of course, queer folk are dispersed all across the city. But it was not a, a safe place for people to be. I mean, it was... It was bad enough in the mid to late 90s that um, on one occasion, I literally picked a guy up off the street who had been been beaten senseless and uh, and carried him home. I mean, I mean that in the most literal way possible. Um, so that kind of stuff happened. He had strayed just outside the boundaries, uh, the accepted boundaries of the, of the queer community. So so queer folks were really marginalized. Um, often they had a tough time keeping jobs. There was a high rate of, of queer folk, gay, lesbian, bi, and trans, two-spirited folks amongst the indigenous people uh, who were involved in street life one way or another. Either they were homeless or they were underhoused, living subsistence level, and, and had to, to uh, get by kind of hustling on the street one way or another. Um, prostitution was part of that, especially for trans people. Um, so... Uh, it was it was really part of the warp and woof of our whole community, which, as I said, was focused on folks who were um, living rough, uh, folks who were living in the margins in the downtown core, um, and and trying to um, get my head around the needs of of just homeless people at first made me realize that there's lots about my theology that didn't work. And I came up against the same thing in engaging with, with people who are queer. The, the theology that I had grown up with and I had uh, and defended for decades um, really was not very effective. It just didn't work in the real world in real time. So it challenged me to think differently and to, to maybe look in some different directions. And I'm not talking in abstract terms. I mean, that happens when you get close to people and you begin to love them. You, you just, you have to find different ways of, of being together. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, when you think back to those early days of exposure to the challenges of LGBTQ plus exclusion, how would you have described your theological framework? Like what were the main building blocks of that position mm -hmm. and how would you describe kind of the thinking of someone who would maybe be coming into this conversation with a similar perspective? Yeah. So at that time, um, I would have described myself as, as evangelical, uh, which I don't think I can anymore just because of the awful associations with that word. Um, but to me, that meant 
that I had a high view of scripture. I put my trust in Jesus for salvation, um, which I, which I still do both of those things. Um, and it was actually a high view of scripture that, that, uh, that helped me through a lot of this stuff. But the theological problem for me in engaging with people who were queer then and for many years was that uh, I believed that the Bible was pretty unequivocal about um, same gender sexual attraction, especially. Now, there's nothing really explicit about transgender identity uh, in scripture, but uh, but in terms of same gender sexual uh, activity and attraction, I thought that the scripture was pretty clear. And by, by that, I'm referring to what people generally call the prohibitive passages, six passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, um, that discuss, that, that have something negative to say about um, same gender sexual activity. I thought that they were pretty conclusive. I thought they were definitive. And so my view of of queer folk coming in would have been well there are people who are engaging in uh you know a sinful lifestyle sinful choices that they make um but the closer i got to people the more problematic that problem that 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 uh, perspective became because i began to realize that for almost everybody this was not a choice i mean i i knew trans people who were murdered uh in because they were forced into prostitution I, they didn't want to be there they didn't want to do that they would, didn't want to put their lives at risk i knew gay men especially who talked about the fact that they had some of them had had families and they'd had to leave and they, and many of them had identified it as Christians in their background and they'd have had to leave church and they, it wasn't, they'd stopped believing in God or the Bible or in fact, many of them believed that because they were gay, they were condemned, that there was no way that God could ever accept them. And so they lived with this constant conviction that they were damned. Um, but they felt they had no choice. They could not change who they were. And as far as they were concerned, who they were was sinful. And and the more I thought about that, the more it just didn't line up with um, with the God who's in Scripture. And so I began to to wonder if if my perspective on Scripture, uh, these particular parts of Scripture, was was skewed in some fashion and and that's really how i started to to wrestle with it um say so, you know walking alongside uh of people who were queer was the same in some ways as walking alongside people who had other particular issues that at the time i would have deemed sinful i, I began to realize well wait a second i'm sinful i'm no more or less sinful than than this person is but why is it that my sin can be forgiven and i can be welcomed in the kingdom of god and and these people, these people can't. Now, I, I would, I would. That's not how I would express myself now. I need to hasten to add uh, for those who are queer and are listening to this. Um, I don't think that um, that you know within certain frameworks that that uh, queer relationships are any more sin, sinful or or less sinful and are just as blessed, I should say, <laughs> as as straight relationships which are fraught with all kinds of difficulties too. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not expressing so, myself very well there. 
Oh, that's okay. We'll, 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 we're, we're only about halfway through, so we got lots of time for you to clarify yeah. your journey here. But this dissonance led you on a journey. And this yeah. journey you've recently accounted for in a book that you wrote called Queer Prophets. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone listening to uh, get a copy of that, uh, Greg Paul, Queer Prophets. But uh, for the interest of the podcast, Greg, can you can you just kind of summarize the high points of what that really what that biblical journey was? Because awakening to marginalization and exclusion, awakening to those realities with LGBTQ plus people, and awakening to the the humanity of just the, the struggle of queer folk ultimately does become a conversation around how you understand the Bible, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does for for people like me who uh, have to have kind of a theological co- coherence to feel like they're they're okay. <laughs> you know, not everybody does, but but I certainly do and did. Um, so, but having said that, I would say that it was relationship with individuals that kept moving me along. So there was a man early on who uh, I had known in the uh, very conservative circles that I'd grown up with, grown up in, who came out in his 30s uh, as, as a gay man, um, and he was completely cut off by the circles that he was uh, that he was part of. And when I started at Sanctuary, he had actually become an Anglican priest in our in our neighborhood. So I, I met with him and came away from that meeting thinking, this is a guy who's uh, he, he's a godly person. He's he exhibits the love of God. It's like it's shining from him. It was very striking to me, and I and I thought, you know, well, God, how can you work through this person and um, and work in this person? And and you know, God's answer was, well, I you know, I work through you and in you, don't I? <laughs> so 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 that was you know a point where you know I realized, oh, I'm I'm making myself better than some other people. So that was one thing. That was a critical point, um, and I didn't realize how critical uh, this next thing was. Probably in terms of my theological theological journey around um, queer folks was, but I, I became a volunteer at the AIDS Committee of Toronto um, in the early '90s because I realized I needed to reach out to the gay community on their own terms and be in a place where. I wouldn't hurt them unintentionally with, you know, bad theology or stupid things that I might say. So I, it was largely uh, gay people, queer people who ran the organization almost exclusively, in fact. So I was the first, um, I'm pretty sure I was the first pastor, evangelical pastor person. I might have been the first straight male who actually was a volunteer at ACT. And through that, I got to know a man named Neil um, a gay man who was dying of AIDS, and uh, and as he lay dying one day, um, and I had helped clean him up, uh, tell the story in the book, so I won't go into great detail. It became clear to me that by by serving him, I was actually carrying for the Christ. You know, Jesus says, "When I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was sick, etc., you cared for me." In as much as you did it for the least of these brothers of mine, Matthew 25, and and I and it was a a revelation to me in the moment that wow that's what's going on here, and then um, as uh, as I left that day, Neil blessed me. Now he wasn't a Christian man, but he blessed me. He prayed for me 
and gave thanks to God for me and said all kinds of wonderful things about me. And he blessed me literally in the name of Jesus. So <laughs> it was a powerful experience. And I didn't, I mean, just, it, it may be the most pivotal experience of my life spiritually. Um, and it's continued to bear fruit through the years. But, but then, as I said, I had multiple experiences with people who I knew who, um, who felt like they had no choice and lived in difficulty and misery uh, often because they felt like they had no choice and society made it hard on them. Uh, I had, an, I had a, a, again, through the AIDS community of Toronto, a relationship with a trans woman named um, Roxanne who was born intersex and her parents chose to make her a boy when she was a kid, uh, when she was an infant. And, and, but then in her late teens, she realized, well, actually, no, I feel like I'm a woman. And because the doctors said, basically flip a coin, you've got a child who could be either. And uh, in, somewhere in that process, um, Roxanne contracted AIDS too, and she died of AIDS alone. And, and I thought, this is a person who never had a chance. Ever. Like it wasn't her fault. So how on earth do I make sense of a God who is loving and just and in this kind of scenario? So the, all of those moments of dissonance kept building and building and building for me. And ultimately, it was, you know, that the only line I could draw really was that I, I felt like I couldn't marry people of the same gender. Um, and and. Even there, I, I realized that creates a second tier of, of personhood. So uh, I felt because God says uh, in you know in Genesis, what we have is this story of God saying, you know, let's make male and female in our image. Uh, we'll make uh, and and then He says, you know, what I've joined together, don't let man put asunder. When He joins Adam and Eve this kind of this image of marriage. And I thought, well, that's what marriage is. Uh, so I, I can't, that's the one thing I, I can't do. Um, and I was stuck there for a long, long time until in 2012 um, on a sabbatical uh, during a time when I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff at all, walking along a, a country road in England, uh, the thought just popped into my mind. What if, when Paul says to the Galatians that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is no male nor female. What if that means that gender in the kingdom agenda no longer matters? And that was a moment for me. It just seemed to come out of nowhere. And I thought, okay, what if that's true? If that's true and we're supposed to be living towards the reality of the kingdom rather than towards what we often call the curse, which I think it's poorly named, but, but the situation that comes out of the garden of Eden, you know, however many thousands of years ago, if, if we're supposed to be living forward rather than back, then what would it mean for us if we lived that reality now? And, and then I began to think, well, if that's true, then it should be supported elsewhere in scripture. And, uh, and, and immediately I, I thought of um, Revelation, which is kind of the, you know, the end game, right? This is the consummation of all things. And, 
uh, and in the last couple of chapters, um, it, it says that uh, John sees the city of the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, dressed as a bride for her husband. And clearly, this is an image of who the people of God are. And God uh, it says that God will dwell in the city. And uh, most commentators would agree that there's, a, there's an inferred sexual image in that. And some people will really get their backs up about that, I know. But I think that it's fairly clear when you talk about marriage and God is going to live in the city. There's just a marriage. There's a union that's going on there between God and his people. And and I thought, wow, I'm a straight guy and I'm going to be part of the bride, which is a female image. Mm-hmm. So there is some kind of confirmation that that um, that what Paul says is an expression of the culmination of the of the redemptive agenda, and and then I thought, you know, well, if that's the case, then I should be able to find inferences of this at least elsewhere in Scripture. So I started going back and viewing Scripture in a different way than I ever had before, and I think the key to that, Jeff, was was that I I I had all I had long thought that Scripture needed to be be viewed as a narrative rather than as uh, you know, a, a presentation of systematic theology, that it's a narrative theology. So you look at the story, the story is what tells you uh, what matters. And, and so I began to think, okay, in any story, the ending really explains how you interpret everything else. And I won't go into any more detail unless you want me to, but basically when I started to work back through scripture and think, okay, if that's the end game, how then will I understand these other parts of scripture? That were problematic. I, I began to discover not only was there support for this position that that gender um, ceases to matter in the kingdom, but that it changed my view of some of the more problematic passages as well, and, and made it an awful lot easier to understand. You, you obviously you go into lengths in your book about yeah. uh, the, the 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 more genderless finish line, yeah, uh, for eternity. I know similarly you address in one of your chapters uh, a, a passage that similar to you in your walk in Europe like uh, has messed with me. And that was the interaction with Jesus and the Sadducees yep. when they're messing with them and saying, yeah. you know, about the afterlife and saying, yeah. you know, this woman is married to a guy and he dies. So she marries his brother and he dies. And that happens six more times. So she's married oh. to, you know, seven brothers. And so who she married to in heaven. This poor woman, in huh? That's my first response to that story is that poor woman. <laughs> I know. I think about, yeah, yeah I won't even go into that, but yeah. my wife and my brother's wife would that want nothing to yeah. do with that. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, Jesus says, listen, I know you're trying to trick me, but he says, you don't understand the kingdom. Yeah. And he makes a, a comment to, to, to the essence that, you know, in eternity, we're not going to be married. Yes. And so again, you know, when you're and we'll be about, like the angels and we'll be like the angels. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think again, if we're beginning with the end in mind, you know, wh- wh- what is that end that we're shooting for? And more importantly, if uh, it, where it was convicting for me is if my responsibility is to usher in the realities of the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven, and that's the way it is in heaven. Well, Maybe I don't need to make as big a deal about the exclusivity of complementary gender relationships 
yeah. uh, particularly in marriage. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that definitely has been a, a passage that's messed with me. Yeah. Um, I mean, this could go on for a, a long time. I, I'll say it again, everyone get Greg's book. And uh, if you're keen on this journey, he does a really great job in, in walking us through his uh, thought process. As we wrap up though, Greg, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, many of us in, in Southridge coming from our, uh, you know, more traditional and, and evangelical background uh, want to love well, we want to love LGBTQ people well. I, I'm just wondering, what would you say to any of us who still hold theologically a, a more traditional view around marriage and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I'd say is that I have a lot of, of sympathy for you, a lot of empathy for you, because uh, I wrestled with this issue deliberately and thoughtfully for 20 years, I would guess, close to 20 years, uh, and got very little peace about it. So I am, and it's, and it's, in fact, it's probably, it's a big part of the reason that I wrote the book is because I know that there are people who hold as you, what you describe as kind of a traditional theological view about marriage and sexuality, um, who are people who really want to love. They want to love like Jesus. They want to love well. Increasingly, they're encountering people who are queer in one way or another, and they, and they want to love well. And, uh, and if you're like me, uh, you're finding it harder and harder to understand how your theological convictions stack up against that. And because you find that they're constricting and you start to ask yourself the question, how is it that a flawed person like me can be more accepting than apparently God is? And I know that there are answers to that, but that's kind of what really stuck in my craw. And so I, I, what I want to say is keep loving, keep loving and keep looking for better answers. Keep looking for the answers that allow you to love more truly and more effectively. And if you seek that, you can trust that God, who is himself love, will lead you to his truth in this matter. And um, and as long as we're mistaken, which we are about many things, I'm sure I am mistaken about a great many things, we can also trust that, that God will redeem in some fashion uh, those mistakes as, as far as we allow him to do that. Um, so, you know, it's good to remember we have a love and, and gracious God. I, I would say, too, that I want to say that I totally understand Many uh, queer folk who increasingly are saying, I have no time for theologically conservative people who are still stuck on the journey and say that they want to love, but they want to deny who I am as a queer person. Uh, and I'm just moving on and I'm not going to be waiting for them to, to catch up. I understand that because I remember those voices of, of men who stood on the steps uh, at uh, on Church Street many years ago, who believed that they were condemned, and and had to fight their way out of that, and some of them never did. Some of them committed suicide because they believed that, and um, and so I understand that too. And um, 
so I think we should we should be gracious with each other as much as we can in all of this. It's a very, very difficult issue for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Hmm. Really appreciate that word, Greg. Um, I'm sure many of us listening wish this could go on for another half hour, but we're going to wrap things up. I just want to say again, thank you so much, uh, not just for participating in the podcast and now becoming uh, more of a voice on uh, LGBTQ plus inclusion, but for all the years of your caring and faithful investment in us as we've kind of dipped our toe increasingly in serving with and among the homeless. You've been a huge cheerleader and a huge mentor to our community and to our leaders. Uh, We just so appreciate you and are grateful that uh, we could check in again and hear what God's up to in your life these days. So thanks so much. Thank you. It's all very gracious. I want you to know that, uh, that I trumpet the, uh, the beauty of Southridge all over the place. I think, you know, Southridge is, is one of, the very few large churches that I know that has really tried to live the gospel of the kingdom very well and has made difficult choices in order to do it. So God bless and keep you all. Thanks, Greg. And thanks all to you for uh, tracking again this week. We'll see you again next week as we keep finding our way together. Take care, everyone. Mm